U.S. troops defend against attacks in the Middle East, war rages on in Ukraine, threats of a shutdown, and a months-long hold on military nominations in Congress. Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. We will take all necessary measures to protect our troops. The safety of our troops and our civilians are of utmost importance to the President of the United States and to me. Competition with China rages, aviation accidents, and recruiting challenges. What has this past year meant for our defense and security? Well, you'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is Tuesday, December 26th, 2023. Hey there, listeners. It's been a busy year. Our team works incredibly hard each day to bring you the most accurate, transparent, and thoughtful reporting on defense issues. So we're going to take a look back at some of the biggest stories in 2023, how they may continue into and still impact 2024 and beyond. There was no shortage of conflicts raging across the globe this year, some new and some ongoing. But perhaps one of the largest outbreaks of violence and conflict began on October 7th in Israel. Hamas militants attacked Israel in an assault that killed more than a thousand people and captured dozens of hostages. It was a Saturday and it was all over the news everywhere. But then once I got back to work on Monday, it was, okay. what's the U.S. response going to be? Because every time something happens anywhere, it's what's the U.S. response going to be? Are we going to get involved? Are we going to, you know, send help? Military Times Pentagon Bureau Chief Megan Myers has tracked the U.S. response to the fighting in Israel, Gaza and the greater region. Two aircraft carriers and their strike groups moved into the eastern Mediterranean in amphibious ready groups. So that's an amphibious assault ship, its support groups, and then a Marine expeditionary unit on one of those ships moved in. None of them have had to do anything, but it's in case there needs to be some sort of operation, if there needs to be some sort of humanitarian evacuation, the Marines are qualified to do that. And then some other things to kind of protect larger in in the region, U.S. troops who are already there. So some Army air defense units and some Air Force fighter squadrons, and then just some support troops on the ground. Now, the Pentagon hasn't told anybody which countries these units have gone to for security reasons. We may, you know, one day find out, but right now it's more, we just want you to know we're there, but not going to allow you to target us. But an increased U.S. presence in the Middle East did not stop attacks on U.S. positions in Iraq and Syria. October 17th was the first time that the Pentagon announced that they were seeing multiple attacks on bases in Iraq and Syria. In the two previous years, there'd been a couple dozen, you know, every month, couple of months, see a rocket try to get over in, you know, al-Assad in Iraq or in al-Tamf in Syria. Uh, But all of a sudden, it was every day. Some days it was multiple times a day. Um, And the Pentagon hasn't said that that is necessarily related to Hamas and Israel or U.S. support for Israel. But the timing is very spot on in terms of the U.S. trying to show some more presence, show some more force in the Middle East, and these Iran-backed militias sort of responding in kind in their way, which is to launch a drone over a base that houses U.S. troops or send a rocket over the wall. 
Despite constant attacks in Iraq and Syria, more conflict in the Middle East rose up, this time from Yemen. Another tertiary conflict that has ramped up in the meantime, these Houthi rebels who are based in Yemen. The idea is that they are targeting Israel by sending these missiles, but they're sending them over the Red Sea where U.S. ships are already. And so U.S. ships are not necessarily in the crossfire, but the way that the Pentagon describes it, the way, you know, naval leadership has described it, is that these missiles are getting close enough to U.S. ships that U.S ships are like, okay, we're going to shoot that down. So they're not targeting U.S. ships, but because the missiles are going by, U.S. ships are like, well, this is kind of in our area of operations, so we're going to shoot that down. U.S. forces have defended against more than 120 drone and rocket attacks in Iraq, Syria, and the Red Sea since December 20th. U.S. military officials have also blamed Houthi rebels and an assortment of local militia groups for the attacks. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said earlier this month that the groups are not the only ones responsible for the attacks. We are talking about the Houthis here. They're the ones with their finger on the trigger. But that gun, the weapons here are being supplied by Iran. And Iran, we believe, is the ultimate party responsible for this. The United States in response has been showing restraint, not allowing these small attacks to pull them into a larger conflict. The Pentagon, though, has conducted its strikes against targets. We will take all necessary measures to protect our troops. The safety of our troops and our civilians are of utmost importance to the President of the United States and to me. And so we will do what's necessary to protect our troops. Our message is we will take whatever necessary actions to protect those forces, to deter future attacks. Uh, and if and when we need to respond, we would do so at a time and place of our choosing. I mean, they're really careful about being like, it's, it'll be a time and a place of our choosing, whether they want to target some of these militias um, in Syria primarily is where they've been trying to target their facilities to downgrade their ability to shoot weapons at U.S. troops. To date, the United States has conducted three strikes on Iranian-backed militias, and U.S. officials have worked to create a maritime coalition to defend civilian ships in the Red Sea. These attacks are reckless dangerous, and they violate international law. And so we're taking action to uh, build an international coalition to address this threat. And I would remind you that this is not just a U.S. issue. This is an international problem, and it deserves an international uh, response. At this time last year, Ukraine kept Russia at bay and even captured territory in its counteroffensive. They launched what was a lightning counteroffensive in which they took back tons of territory, blitzing through weak Russian lines that were in the middle of being transitioned between the troops. That and a counteroffensive in the south around the city of Kherson, which was the only regional capital the Russians had taken to that point in the war and a great symbol of their victory as they were trying to sell it at home, convinced the Ukrainians and their Western backers that they were ready for an operation that was larger. After these victories, Defense News Pentagon reporter Noah Robertson said Ukrainians began advocating for more military aid from Western allies. They requested a slew of weaponry, including armored vehicles, tanks, missile defense, and eventually weapons that were supplied much later and still are in transition to them, like the ATACMs long-range missiles and the F-16 fighters that they're now training on in Europe themselves. Those started arriving last winter around this time and then began arriving later in the winter of 2023 in the new year, and the Ukrainians began training on those in new battalions that they had formed while their more seasoned ones were defending the city 
city of Bakhmut, which was under siege from the Russians for much of the year. The 2022 counteroffensive left Ukrainians hopeful going into 2023. Ukrainians had hoped to be able to take an enormous amount of territory back from the Russians, citing the successes they had had and the small counteroffensives that had occurred in late 2022. Ukrainians had a plan A and a plan B. The fallback plan B involved at least taking the city of Tukmat if they weren't able to secure the city of Melitopol to capture the Crimean land bridge to disrupt Russian logistics. Despite the weaponry and the training that the Ukrainians had received, they ran into a simple problem. During the time that the Russians had taken this territory after invading in 22, they were able to establish a layer cake of defenses. These included minefields, what are called dragon's teeth, which are anti-tank defenses, and entire layers of reserves and reserves behind them. So that every time the Ukrainians were able to breach some of these minefields, and it wasn't many that they were able to do, the Russians were able to flood the zone with soldiers or artillery, and this was aided by another development during the war this year, which is the development and increasing use of what are called FPV, or first-person view drones, which are able to sync up to artillery and identify positions and attacks in real time, which then make it much harder for either side to be able to take the other by surprise. Any sort of attack puts the other at increased jeopardy. Looking to next year, another counteroffensive may not be possible, at least for another year. The focus for 2024 seems to be playing defense. Ukraine lost so much of its material in 2023 that it would be unlikely, due to shortages of manpower and also weaponry, to be able to launch another counteroffensive in 2024. So senior military officials are looking at what might be called an active defense posture where Ukraine consolidates the gains that it's made since 2022, builds capacity perhaps in the future to launch another counteroffensive, but makes sure essentially that it doesn't lose any more territory, keeping Russia on the back foot. But defense and national security issues aren't just about faraway conflicts, moving weapons and troops from one location to another. National security matters permeated our domestic politics as well, or maybe it was the other way around. Most of you remember last year the Supreme Court overturned the Roe v. Wade decision that made abortion access a right across the country. Well, defense officials took action to secure that right last December. Today, Secretary Austin signed a memo directing the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness to oversee implementation of a number of initiatives designed to ensure reproductive health care access for our service members and their family members, and to bring clarity to DOD policies in the wake of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. They put in place an abortion travel policy for service members who need to travel to another state to receive the procedure or other reproductive health care in states that have banned abortion. Some officials believed it would help counter what they thought were negative impacts on retention. One in five members of the U.S. military are women. We're an all-volunteer force. Nobody's forcing you to sign up and go. People volunteer to go. You raise your right hand and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for a few years or even for my life. And it might cost me my life to do it. And when you sign up and you make that contract, you have every right to expect that the organization, in this case the military, is going to take care of you and they're going to take care of your families. And they're going to make sure that you can serve with dignity and respect no matter who you are or who you love uh, or, uh, or how you worship or don't. And our policies, whether they're diversity, inclusion, and equity, or whether they're about 
transgender individuals who qualify physically and mentally to serve to be able to do it with dignity, or whether it's about female service members, one in five, or female family members being able to count on the kinds of health care and reproductive care specifically that they need to serve. Uh, that is a foundational, sacred obligation of military leaders across the river. But that policy drew Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's attention. In response to the policy, he put a hold on all military nominees. The Tuberville holds really date back to late 2022 when he first raised objections to the Defense Department's abortion policy. At that point, the policy wasn't in effect. You know, they were talking about increasing access. And Senator Tuberville put a hold on a few uh, senior defense nominees saying, hey, if you don't explain what you're going to do and meet with my staff and talk about this, I'm not going to let these folks go through. So last December, we sort of had the the foreshadowing of this fight. But Military Times Capitol Hill Bureau Chief Leah Shane III said the extent of the holds caught him and other reporters by surprise. I think at the time, most reporters, most most folks thought, oh, you know, we, we've seen these kind of holds before, you know, a couple of people here and there. It'll be a pain in the butt for uh, for a little bit, but it's not going to be anything historic or unusual. Um, at the start of February, Senator Tuberville announced, no, he was going to hold up everyone. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. There's been individual holds. There's been a couple of things here, but not every senior military nominee, and especially, especially not on the military side. Democrats slammed Tuberville over the holds. The senior senator from Alabama, who claims to support our troops, is now blocking more than 300 military operations with his extreme political agenda. The holds dragged on for 10 months, and eventually it drew the ire of Republicans as well. As we went into the summer, we started to hear those first murmurs from Republican leaders saying like, hey, this has been going on for a while. This is more significant than just holding up a couple people. And we started to hear stories from some of the nominees themselves uh, and some of the families involved. You know, this, this first started in February. By the time June rolled around, there were military families that were planning on making moves and planning on moving kids into new schools. There were folks who were thought that they were going to retire and have the summer off who now were forced to stay in those positions um, because they couldn't get their replacements there. So we started to start to hear more and more from both sides of the aisle about, boy, this, this really is having an impact. This is not just another political stunt. This is something that's, that's bigger and broader. And I think you started to see that in the news coverage, too. Um, you started to see uh, a bunch of publications that don't, don't typically cover this issue suddenly start coming in. The, the the scrums around Senator Tuberville asking him how long he was going to hold on to these folks, how long he was going to continue this protest, they started to get bigger and bigger. He started to get more attention. Uh, all of a sudden, he's on more podcasts talking about this, more radio shows, more TV shows talking about his stance. By the time the fall came around, more than 450 senior military nominees were in limbo, and that included three seats on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the main presidential military advisory body. It would have taken months of Senate floor time to confirm all of those individuals. Military leaders said they had kept up operations and planning, but Marine Corps Times reporter Irene Lowenson said cracks were beginning to show. Then, in late October, right after the Marine Corps Marathon, where he was cheering people on from the sidelines, a pretty warm day in D.C., General Eric Smith went into cardiac arrest right near his home in Washington and was hospitalized. And all of a sudden, everything started to change. He said in September, and then again, he mentioned in October, that this was just a really punishing schedule. He was sleeping five hours a night, including on weekends, just running around trying to get all these jobs done. Um, And he, he said, you know, it's fine. 
No one should feel bad for me, but I'm worried about the effect of my ability to make good decisions. Senator Tuberville's critics said this episode showed how untenable the situation was. I think it was an important symbol for a lot of critics of Tuberville that these holds aren't just causing imaginary consequences. They're, they're really affecting people's lives. And then also, when General Smith was in the hospital, there was no confirmed assistant commandant. Lieutenant General Karsten Heckel, who was just the most senior general at headquarters Marine Corps, was in charge for a couple days, and then the Senate rushed to confirm General Mahoney to the assistant commandant job. Eventually, Democrats advocated for rule changes to allow approving the nominees en masse. And Republican veterans in particular took to the floor to call for Tuberville to end the holds. No matter where you believe it or not, Senator Tuberville, this is doing great damage to our military. I don't say that lightly. I've been trying to work with you for nine months. We have a really dangerous world, a really dangerous world right now. And to say, oh, don't worry, this isn't impacting readiness, with all due respect to my colleague, that's just wrong. The pressure behind the scenes got, got overwhelming for Senator Tupperfield. Now he's got most of the Republican caucus in weekly meetings coming to him and saying, you've got to change this. This is not the way to handle this. You're punishing the military. You're making us all look bad. You've got to move ahead. So on the eve of what we expected was going to be a Democratic-led vote to change the rules that might get a few Republican um, supporters as well, uh, Senator Tuberville finally dropped his protest. Today, hundreds, hundreds of military families across the country can breathe a sigh of relief. The Senate has now unanimously confirmed hundreds of military nominations that were held up for 10 months by a single person, the senator from Alabama. Tuberville dropped all but 11 of his holds, only holding a tiny fraction of total military officials. Those remaining holds were four-star generals. Just last week, the Senate approved those last nominations, ending the stalemate. But in the middle of the saga, the military got its newest uniform leader. Defense News Air Warfare reporter Stephen Losey had a front seat to the action. It had been quite some time since an Air Force officer had been chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General C.Q. Brown's predecessor as Air Force Chief of Staff, General Dave Goldfein, was seen as a leading favorite to be um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under former President Trump. However, President Trump ultimately decided to go with Army General Mark Milley, who became chairman of the Joint Chiefs in 2019, and uh, Milley served out his term. And so by the beginning of 2023, you were hearing, and even before in 2022, there was a sense that General C.Q. Brown was a heavy favorite to be Milley's successor. Not only was it in some ways seen as the Air Force's turn, more or less. But also C.Q. Brown had made quite a name for himself with uh, his efforts to modernize the Air Force, an effort he called Accelerate, Change, or Lose. Basically, C.Q. Brown has been a major proponent of trying to divest older airframes to free up budget and resources to bring on new airframes that would be better suited to a fight against China. General Brown's a warrior, descended from a proud line of warriors. Brown came from a military family. After graduating from the, an ROTC program, he w became a skilled F-16 fighter pilot and served in a variety of command roles. That included commanding the Air Force in the Indo-Pacific. In the middle of the nomination fight, Senator Tuberville had forced a vote on Brown, 
along with the Chief of Naval Operations and Air Force Chief of Staff. But Brown's confirmation wasn't seamless either. Some question him on social issues in the military, which have also been under scrutiny this year. Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt asked about diversity efforts for pilots in the Air Force. General, do we have too many white officers in the Air Force? Senator, what I really look at is the quality of all the officers that we have, and, and, and we look at the, the aspect of everyone who's qualified, um, meets, uh, meets the qualifications, uh, is, is promoted. And well, I, I would agree with you, but that, that, is, that answer is not consistent with your August 9th memo. In your August 9th memo, you said that you signed on to that there should be a reduction, essentially, of about 9% of the white officers. That's 5,400. We have 5,400, you know, too many white officers. And this is the real impact, I think, of this desire of the administration, I'm saddened to see this in this memo, of this, of this obsession with sort of race-based politics being interjected into our military. How did you come up with the percentage of 67.5% of the officers should be white? And how did you come up with 13% should be black? And how did you come up with 10% should be Asian? And how did you come up with 1.5% should be American Indian and Native Alaskan? How did you come up with 1% being Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander? And how did you come up with 15% of our officers should be Hispanic or Latino? Senator, that is based on the, uh, that memo is on application goals, not the actual makeup of the force. And those, those numbers are based on uh, the demographics of the nation. That wasn't the first time Brown, a black man, has been in the spotlight for his comments on race and diversity. Before General Brown became the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force, that was when George Floyd uh, was killed by Minneapolis police in 2020, sparking a great deal of unrest, conversations about uh, racial justice in the country. General Brown felt compelled to uh, get out there and share some of his thoughts, which he did so in a very frank and uh, emotionally open video that went viral and in many quarters was very highly regarded for what he was saying about what it was like for him to be a uh, black person as an officer in the U.S. military. As the commander of Pacific Air Forces, a senior leader in our Air Force, and an African-American, many of you may be wondering what I'm thinking about the current events surrounding the tragic death of George Floyd. I'm thinking about how full I am with emotion, not just for George Floyd, but the many African-Americans that have suffered the same fate as George Floyd. And thinking about a history of, of racial issues and my own experiences that didn't always sing of liberty and equality. I'm thinking about my Air Force career, where I was often the only African-American in my squadron, or as a senior officer, the only African-American in the room. Brown, though, still received strong bipartisan support for his eventual confirmation. Defense policies also contributed to drama surrounding the House of Representatives' ousting of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker in September. McCarthy had taken the conservative route to pass the House's initial defense policy bill in the summer, 
The defense bill was riddled with conservative social issues involving the military, particularly repealing the Pentagon abortion travel policy. But limiting spending on transgender surgeries and diversity efforts in the military, among others, were added to the bill. Those provisions, though, meant Democrats defected from the usually bipartisan bill. They got these amendments passed on the floor with the slim Republican majority, and then predictably what happened was Democrats, other than four Democrats, the rest of the party said, we cannot vote for all these provisions we consider to be poison pills, and they uh, defected. And this was one thing Jeffries pointed to in the in their justification for voting against um, McCarthy when Matt Gates and the minority of lawmakers in his own party voted to oust him. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries ridiculed McCarthy for that choice. When Republicans take a bipartisan piece of legislation like the National Defense Authorization Act, attack the women of America, attack reproductive freedom, attack the LGBTQ community, attack diverse all across the country, and undermine our national security and the ability of our military to recruit from every corner of America, we're going to oppose that type of extremism. McCarthy eventually pulled out of the speaker race, leaving room for Mike Johnson to win the gavel after multiple ballots. Turmoil and violence have rocked the Middle East and Eastern Europe. We all know it. And tensions continue to build in the Indo-Pacific. The country demands strong leadership of this body, and we must not waver. Of course, it's it's hard to see what, from a conservative perspective, it's kind of hard to see what the Freedom Caucus accomplished there because now you have Speaker Johnson using a lot of the same moves that McCarthy did. In November, he used Democratic support over Freedom Caucus objections to pass a second short-term funding bill. And this week, he passed the NDAA using that suspension of the rules with Democrats to pass it with more Democratic votes and Republican votes. The Compromise Defense Policy Bill, though, did not include the vast majority of those conservative social issues. It passed both chambers with bipartisan support, and President Joe Biden said he would sign the legislation. Throughout the year, U.S. military aid to Ukraine came under more scrutiny and growing constraints. One year ago, President Zelensky came up here and did a joint address to... Congress. This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live, and then their children and grandchildren. This battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide a protection. The brave American soldiers, which held their lines and fought back Hitler's forces during the Christmas of 1944. Brave Ukrainian soldiers are doing the same to Putin's forces this Christmas. Ukraine, Ukraine holds its lines. Defense News Capitol Hill reporter Brian Harris has been tracking Ukraine aid in Congress. This was when Democrats were still in control of the House like their last week or two of control. And at the same time, they passed, uh, you know, a huge fourth tranche of Ukraine aid for this year. Fast forward a year later, we are now almost out of that money. But the political winds across the country and among lawmakers had shifted. I had started reporting about this as far back as October when they passed the second or third tranche 
of Ukraine aid. It was basically about how, you know, House Republicans had become more skeptical of it. And that number has only grown. So whereas before you had like 50 members in the Freedom Caucus last year. Now you have a full 100 or so House Republicans who are opposed to additional Ukraine aid, voicing frustrations about things like no clear end date for the war, worries about how long it will go on and whether we need to continue appropriating another $60 billion to $100 billion a year to keep supporting the Ukrainian war effort against Russia's invasion. Support for Ukraine aid among the American public softened as well. While two-thirds of Americans supported Ukraine in a Gallup poll in August 2022, support has trended downward in recent months. A recent poll from the Reagan Institute found only 57% of Americans support Ukraine aid. Now, aid to the country is in limbo. Senators are currently in negotiations over a joint Ukraine military aid border security agreement. It would give Ukraine $60 billion and Israel $14 billion. Most recently, an initial vote taken on just Ukraine aid in the Senate failed. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said last week that negotiations have made significant progress, but more time is needed. Of course, there were a variety of other high-profile issues this year. Recruitment and retention remained a focus in the military. The defense policy bill passed by the House and Senate sets its lowest end strength numbers since before the U.S. entered World War II. The Air Force, Army, and Navy all missed their recruiting targets for the fiscal year, with only the Marine Corps and Space Force meeting theirs. And it may seem like a century ago, but we'd be remiss not to mention the Chinese spy balloon that crossed the continental U.S. This is what we assess as part of a larger Chinese uh, surveillance balloon program. Um, You've heard us talk in the past about the fact uh, that this is a program that's been uh, operated for several years. While balloons aren't especially newsworthy, it did highlight the tense relationship between the U.S. and China. The response from lawmakers was swift. Nobody wants spy balloons flying over whatever state it is, right? And we need to do more to address it. And President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for their first face-to-face meeting in a year. And this is critically important. We're reassuming military-to-military contacts, direct contacts. As a lot of you press know who follow this, that's been cut off and it's been worrisome. That's how accidents happen, misunderstandings. So we're back to direct, open, clear, direct communications on on a direct basis. Chinese aggression in the South China Sea against U.S. allies and military-to-military communications were at the top of the list, along with pandas, yes. Pandas might be returning to the National Zoo. That isn't national security related, but I just wanted to let you all know. But following Xi's departure, President Biden did call Xi a dictator. And Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that we used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that based on a former government totally different than ours. Anyway. The U.S. made moves in the Indo-Pacific, hammering out details of the submarine agreement between the U.S., United Kingdom, and Australia, otherwise known as AUKUS. That's a submarine sharing agreement. They passed all four authorizations 
that they needed to do to start to get that started. That includes the transfer of Virginia class submarines in the 2030s and all these other things like export control reform that you need to uh, eventually help Australia produce their own nuclear submarine fleet, as well as um, advanced capabilities. So working with Australia and the UK on things like hypersonics, quantum uh, AI. Finland became the newest member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in April. Sweden's membership bid remains stalled by Turkey and Hungary. The Pentagon experienced its biggest leak in years when a junior Air National Guardsman reportedly dropped classified information about the Ukraine war and other matters on the social media platform Twitch. Jack Teixeira was indicted on federal felony charges in connection with the leak. He's pleaded not guilty. And Navy Times found that the military is not immune from America's fentanyl crisis. Records showed several sailors at the naval station Great Lakes have died from the drug. Efforts have been made to stem drug smuggling onto the installation. Pentagon UFO Office Director Sean Kirkpatrick denied any evidence of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. I should also state clearly for the record that in our research, Arrow has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy the known laws of physics. That comes as whistleblower David Gorsh claimed the U.S. government has for decades taken part in an extremely secret UFO reverse engineering program. Due to my extensive executive level intelligence support duties, I was cleared to literally all uh, relevant compartments and in a position of extreme trust, both in my military and civilian capacities. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. New legislation in the Defense Policy Bill for 2024 will help to increase transparency revolving around the government work to identify anomalous phenomena. The Pentagon is working to make a portal for civilians to report data, pictures, or videos of unidentified phenomena next year. And the 82nd Airborne Chorus competed on America's Got Talent. The ensemble made it all the way to the finals, but came up short in winning the competition. That's it for us this morning. Obviously, it's been a long year, and we thank you for choosing the Early Bird Podcast as your news source for this year. Next year shows no signs of slowing down, and we are dedicated to bringing you, in the new year, the same accurate, in-depth, and transparent reporting you've come to expect from us. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez, with editorial assistance from Jonathan Lairfeld. Today's episode featured stories from all across our newsroom and the world. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. We hope you have a happy and healthy new year.